The views expressed on this program are not necessarily those of KUCI, its managers, the UC Board of Regents, or those willing to look squarely at the complexities of Independence Day. Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the July 6th, 2021 edition of Ask a Leader. Today, we'll first hear from Branda Lynn, who returns with still more insight as co-founder of Irvine Watchdog, holding Irvine elected and appointed officials accountable. In the second segment, Inside the 45th, will feature Laguna Woods resident, Mechi Frankie. Stay close. Welcome back to the show. Returning to the program is my guest, Branda Lynn. She is building still and running Irvine Watchdog, and we're going to pick up where we've left off with some of the great park developments. Branda Lynn comes to us today from her home in Irvine. Welcome back to Ask a Leader, Branda Lynn. Thank you, Claudia. It's always great to be here. Well, it's good to have you on speed dial, and you're rendering such a service to all residents of Irvine. So we were originally considering what was going to be an update on the Veterans Cemetery, but I'm going to redirect this interview with Branda's permission. We'll redirect it to consider instead, because it's a bit of a fait accompli now that the Veterans Cemetery is going to be located outside of the Great Park, but there are still decisions being made inside of undeveloped partitions and portions of the Great Park. So I'd like for Branda to begin setting the table here with the to be developed, there's going to be additional condominiums, portion that's already been entitled, but there's another portion that will be up for consideration that are yet to be approved. Let us use the whole transportation element of building out the Great Park as a case study for how the current composition of the Irvine City Council is conducting business. The lack of transparency is going to be the through line listeners. So Brenda Lind, could you set up where we are right now with the consideration of the traffic flow of the condominium units that have been approved and there are an equal number yet to be approved and how the Great Park Builder, the Five Points, is leveraging resources, leveraging leadership to entitle additional dwelling units under his ownership. Sure. Well, just some correction. I haven't seen any additional entitlements sought by Five Point yet, but recently, this past Tuesday, the Transportation Commission did call for a special meeting to review a traffic study for 773 units in the Great Park, which were part of the original allocation of homes that were approved. So this is not a new number or additional to the um, 9,500 or now we're at over a 10,000, but it's not in addition to those numbers. However, there have been concerns about traffic studies in general through the approval process in our city, citywide. These traffic studies are generated by the developer and some residents, especially those within Irvine Watchdog have asked that 
we require an independent traffic study for approval of additional density. Um, one concern and is- And Brenda, excuse me, when you say generated, then I'm looking at costs. Generated, whose responsibility is it when you say generating a traffic study? Well, so when the developer puts forth an uh, application for approval of certain number of units, it comes with a traffic study. But this traffic study is run and generated by the developer. They hire somebody to do their traffic study. That's their cost. That's their cost, correct. You know, the city could do its own and come up with an independent third-party contractor to do a traffic study and include that in in the application process to approve these um, new roads and new neighborhoods. But that has not been done yet. And that's something that I think is needed, especially since with the recent um, RENA numbers that we've seen, which is- Regional Housing Needs Assessment. Yes, absolutely. We, Irvine, was assigned 23,610 affordable housing units that we need to build. And the Orange County Great Park, based on the last planning commission meeting just this past Thursday, was assigned 15,772 of those affordable units. And the number one complaint we hear year after year is that traffic is just getting worse. And part of the problem is because we haven't changed the system of approval and we haven't really looked into the overall management of traffic. We haven't come up with new ways for transit. And if it is already a problem and the homes that have already been entitled and approved that have not been built yet will be built. And now we're adding the arena numbers of over 23,000 affordable units if you think traffic is bad now, it's going to get worse. And the wise thing to do would be to sit down now and plan for the future, to come up with a citywide, maybe even work with a county, something in terms of public transit or an alternative to deal with what is going to be inevitably a greater traffic congestion concern. Well, I just want to put aside, I don't see the county being the least bit proactive and collaborative about something like this. So I guess I'd like for listeners to listen to this with the site that, with the view of this is gonna have to be done internally by the city council itself. And that's where we're gonna look at these moving parts, the kind of leadership and the kind of commitment and the transparency under which they're doing business right now. So back to what you were saying, Brandon. And in regarding the special meeting that was called, another concern was just the rapid approval process that it looked like the developer was seeking. So this is five points. This is five points for this particular plan and this particular traffic study. A special meeting was called just days before. So it really, the information did not get out to the public probably enough. Irvine Watchdog tried to put out an article letting informing residents of what was coming up and to submit public comments if there are any concerns. And the Great Park residents have had concerns within the existing neighborhoods already in terms of parking, in terms of the roads. Some suspect that they're more narrow than other areas. They have certain roundabouts that some residents have complained cannot handle the amount of traffic sometimes. And if one car stops in the roundabout, everyone's stuck. And so these are issues and concerns that we need to address and look at before we approve and build additional neighborhoods, especially within the Great Park, if this is what the Great Park residents are concerned about already with the existing homes and roads. 
So where are the council members, what roles are they playing in how they are notifying the public about either the commitment, the financial commitment, or the staging of this transportation sign-off, this element within the Great Park? Well, it really, this one, this part did not go to the city council and it does not. It's really the responsibility um, of the Transportation Commission. And then once the Transportation Commission approves this traffic study, then it moves up to the Planning Commission. And so the Planning Commission met on Thursday. And to kind of go over the expedited process of calling a special meeting versus just putting this traffic study on their regular Transportation Commission meeting agenda, what this helps the developer is you get the approval on Tuesday from the Transportation Commission, and then it goes to Planning Commission on Thursday for final approval. And so- That's really fast. That's very fast, but I mean, that's, that's not a, that could have been months or half a year at least, right? Especially in light of the fact that the lobbyist for Five Point, Patrick Strader, did show up to the meeting and say that this traffic study has gone through several rounds. This was not something new that they brought up. Well, then there really was no need to call a special meeting. They could have just placed it on the regular Transportation Commission agenda, but it wasn't. And then Planning Commission was to review the approval of two thousand and eight condo units within the Great Park, but that's a topic for another discussion. I think in terms of if we're going to be talking about traffic and transit and a citywide plan, these 23,000 plus units of affordable housing RENA units are going to be dispersed throughout the city. We're talking about the Irvine Business Complex Center and the IBC, Lower Peters Canyon, they're going to get over 2,000, at least that's what we're planning for. Rancho San Joaquin, an older Irvine neighborhood, they're looking at possibly over 2,000 affordable units. University Town Center, 823 affordable units more. And the Spectrum, they have more land there. They were assigned over 17,000 affordable units. So, and the Great Park actually got the largest chunk, which is over 15,000 affordable units. So it's crucial, I think, that our city sit down and come up with a plan before it's too late because not everything can be mitigated. And it costs more when you have to go back and tear down existing infrastructure or existing roads to fix the problem. And not everything can be fixed. I think this is a really important, crucial time for our city and our city leaders to really come up with some solutions looking forward, looking into the future, so that we don't see ourselves in a situation that other cities, perhaps like in LA or elsewhere, that they are seeing. And I think that's a great example to show not everything can be mitigated and it's really wise to come up with something now. For those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Branda Lynn. She's co-founder of Irvine Watchdog. And we're recording this interview on July 3rd. So we're talking about the previous Tuesday and Thursday, this late June meetings. So what do you see as the role of listeners in weighing in with how the general plan is going to accommodate in each of these neighborhoods that you're naming out where the the 23,610 affordable housing units will be shoehorned in around the city? Well, thankfully, our city has been doing outreach to the community and housing element workshops. Um, Our general plan is currently in the process of being updated, and they have started with the housing element. 
And so I believe there were already two or three community workshops, which any resident can attend, and they're very informative. And the options that we have to be heard are pretty much the same, public comments, emails to the council members, um, showing up in person to the transportation commission meeting, the planning commission meeting, you know, and making public comments to the various commissions. But ultimately, if we're not seeing change, the opportunity to make change is really during election time and really voting in council members who we feel can take a leadership position on the issues that matter to you. It's been frustrating for me as an Irvine Watchdog volunteer when residents come and ask, you know, what can we do about this? And really, those are pretty much the only options we have. And, you know, whether the council members are listening to our public comments, whether they're taking them into consideration at all before they're voting, because it would seem to most residents who are watching the council meetings that the decisions have already been made before they show up to the meeting. And the public comments are just not something that they consider at all. Well, it is the way it is, right? It doesn't seem that way. That is how business is being conducted. There are so many fait accomplis prior to those meetings at this point. That's what I want to get at is doing a little forensic work about the transparency lacking in how the council is making some consequential decisions or not making the decision, sort of letting something run out. Sure. I mean, what I would love to see is for the council members, you know, they have social media feeds, they have their accounts and what the, the information that they're really giving us, it doesn't educate us, doesn't inform us of the big no. decisions. They really could do a better job at letting the residents know about these upcoming decisions and really giving us the background, educating us what Watchdog is doing. It would be great if Watchdog didn't have to exist because that information is coming out to the residents and there's transparency through the, throughout the process and public involvement and community outreach, but we're just not seeing that. Most that's, that's my concern, Branda, is when every time I turn around, it's an, a coverage of a ceremonial gesture being offered. We're rolling out the pride flag. We're wearing denim, acknowledging domestic abuse. We're, we're doing gestures, but I'm not hearing the city council move out in front and talk about, here's some policy under consideration. We want public to know, we want public input. I'm missing that. 100%, Claudia, I'm with you, 100%. And it's been a, you know, there's so much good that can be done. And that's, I think, where my frustration comes from. These leaders have so much power to do so much good for Irvine, and we're just not seeing it. And in a way, they're dumbing down the role of a city council member. It shouldn't be about where's the best cookie to buy in Irvine or the best ice cream store in Irvine. It should be about city business. That's what we elect them to do. And that's what we are not seeing, that type of leadership in terms of policies, in terms of vision, in terms of leading our city into the future with you know more public benefits, a plan for transit, a plan for the climate action plan that's more robust and actually feasible. You know, these things are not being discussed. What we're seeing is a dumbed down version of what our council members and their roles as council members to lead our city is. And I don't know how to fix that. <laughs> I don't know what we can do to fix that, quite honestly. So on background, you talk about how the city council for public debate, as an example, with the Veterans Cemetery, that the city council can shuffle who comments at what time. And you, you can, when you observed until 
the wee hours, 1 a.m., about the Veterans Cemetery, that you saw there were people speaking about the original entitlement of a cemetery in the Great Park, that all comments supportive of the original plan were saved for the last portion. So it's the decision has been made about where the cemetery is going to be located. But so the business is being conducted not in broad daylight with the public. There are select few that are actually transacting business with the council. This is the problem we're faced with the summer of 2021. Is it not Branda? I would say yes. I mean, you shouldn't need to be friends with a council member to get their ear. They represent our entire city. We elect them at large, which should change. And that's a discussion we've talked about with district elections, which still hasn't gotten on the agenda. And there just doesn't seem like there's a will by this current city council to move forward with any discussion regarding switching to district elections. But again, that's a topic for another discussion. Well, we're talking about how the, where the council members are actually conducting business. It's not in terms of the public policy with the public. It is all very transactional with the stakeholders of building out the city. Correct. And it would be wonderful to see more outreach from the city to the community. I mean, they do a good job. I I do receive the emails where they want to hear from the community, especially regarding the IBC and, you know, the um, plans that they had there for the pedestrian walkways and the parks, the linear parks that they have planned there. Um, So they do some outreach and, but the council members could do a great job or uh, do a better job, I think, of kind of soliciting information, getting people involved, going out to those communities where big decisions are being made and just talking to the residents there. It's demanding more of them, but especially in this day and age with social media, I think it could be done. We're just not seeing uh, very- There's not due diligence done with getting out the word about how things are being built out. It's not happening. And I, I wanna say, because it's so important that the affordable housing units are built. Every city has- a share in the region. That that policy is well understood. I want to reinforce that. I'm concerned that the leadership on the council is not being exerted to make the case why we have a share in affordable housing units and the kind of outreach like what the outreach was the example for those who were around here in the early parts of the Great Park. There were so many kinds of public forums to take comments and to inform about each of the phases of the consideration about developing the Great Park. So how that would have been an example of how the regional housing needs assessment, because it's so pervasive around the city and the impacts are quite considerable, how to make the case for the need for those units to do our part as well as to make sure the infrastructure supports all of that. Exactly. Nobody's ready for that. So that's what I'm trying to get at, how the council is operating right now. Yeah, and they, on a lot of important issues, I would say they are not involving the residents as much as they could. So that's the concern is where is the business being done? And so let's get back to the transportation element of, those additional units contemplated inside the Great Park. So 
you talked about there was that urgent meeting conducted to sign off on the adequate transportation can accommodate the first phase of the 700 and some condominium units up there, but the oversight of the additional units and the funding of that transportation study. Talk about those moving parts to demonstrate where the council is telegraphing commitments and financial and commitments in land use decision-making to all of us. Well, that's a loaded question. With that one area, just using that one area as the case study. Well, actually, there's something I wanted to bring up. Is it okay regarding commissioners? Absolutely. You know, there has been some question and being a former commissioner, I know the process and our city gives the power to appoint commissioners to the council members. But I think everybody needs to ask ourselves, are these commissioners fit to do this job in terms of transportation commission, planning commission? These commissions overlook documents that are highly technical, very complex. And if they're not asking questions and trying to learn, they can really do a disservice to our city. And a lot of these appointments are based on who the council members know. And there are cities, for instance, I know that the city of Tustin, they have an application process where it's at large and anybody in the city of Tustin can apply for any of the commissions. And then they review them. And I, I'm not sure who ultimately ends up appointing from that. So it's a public vetting process Tustin has institutionalized. Yes. But we um, don't have something comparable to that at this point. Not for the commissioners. And especially important. Plan, it's absolutely important. And the planning commission is powerful. They are making decisions on land use. And so I think it's important to have commissioners and make sure that our commissioners are dedicated to serving the good for the entire community. And we've heard from certain commissioners who may think that something's good for the community, but haven't received enough public support. And they wanted some cover from the residents. And so they were afraid to stand their ground. These are the types of people we do not need. These are the types of people we need to replace. Commissioners are there to vet these plans with the perspective of the residents. And we have the experts, their city staff. We have our politicians, that city council. The commissioners are supposed to vet these projects looking out for the community with the residents perspective, in my opinion. And they don't provide that. And what's complicated is when you're appointed by a city council member, you serve at the pleasure of that council member. So you're gonna see an alignment with the council majority being the same as the commission. And we really need more independence, I believe. And I think if we have um, stronger commissioners who are fit for the job and have the expertise that's needed, maybe they would ask the tougher questions and get us kind of headed in the right direction because the system we have right now is broken and it does not do a good job and is doing a disservice to our city and something needs to change. We can't keep approving the projects. We can't keep approving the development plans and the traffic studies the way we have been. There's a reason why we're seeing the problems that we see today in terms of traffic and in terms of congestion. Nothing's changed. The system needs to be updated and it needs to be strengthened. So there's a matter of expertise and there's a matter of the familiarity with the city over the years 
that both of those seem to be wanting in the commissioners. It, it serves, does it, Branda, a kind of a rubber stamp of the stakeholders that are making the most noise with the city council. Yes. And this is not to say that if you don't have a background in city planning, you are not fit for, for the planning commission. That's not true because there are plenty of commissioners who do their due diligence, who ask tough questions, who go to every briefing that's provided by city staff, who do their research before the meetings. And you can see they show up to the meetings with their binders and folders with tabs and highlights. So it's not to say- But is that everybody doing that that you've seen or is it just a few? Are all the commissioners bringing those big binders or are with, you know, with work, the dog-eared pages or, or is it kind of clear by the, the view of who's really digging in, getting some dirt under their fingernails with, with the reports? I think it's clear based on just the questions that are asked by each of the commissioners. Yes. The ones who show up to these big meetings without any questions, that is a There's the rubber stamp. Absolutely. And if not for any other reason, then to educate the residents, educate the public on these issues. You know, it's important to know that these commissioners and our electeds are thinking through these plans and approval processes. The robust discussion on the dais, we're not seeing that. And I, for one, miss, you know, I, I, I look back at a lot of old footage of old council meetings. I just like watching them. I don't know this why. Is important. This is important, listeners, is that there is a dilution of leadership. And this is what Branda is illustrating right now, comparing the way business is being conducted now. Yes, back to what you used to see where there was more deliberation, Branda. Much more public deliberation. And yes, the council meetings went longer. On social media, Vice Mayor Tammy Kim stated that these positions of council member are part-time jobs. And so she wanted the public to understand her position and that she shouldn't be expected to be holding long meetings after meeting after meeting. But when you look back at the old council meetings, most of them went past 9, 10. Recently, we saw a council meeting that ended, I believe, before 5.30, you know. I'm shocked. That is a total change of business. Absolutely. And especially when there were so many big items, big concerns in the community, and to not put any of them on the agenda and to adjourn so quickly, it just- That is breaking news, Brandon, that the business of the city council's public meetings have been truncated so radically that shows how tightly organized, scripted, budgeted, those are that will only indicate the business has already been committed to in other quarters. And to speak to the Brown Act, to speak to transparency with Irvine constituents, that is a whole new breaking news item. Yes. Um, 5.30. Okay. But if you're not taking these plans and these decisions and these approval processes seriously enough, it does such a disservice that lasts through years and generations in our city. You know, I, I don't want to sound overly dramatic here, but some of these decisions, if we look back at our city council from the 80s, from the 90s, and how much, how long these meetings would go, and how the discussion was public, you know, now the council members are coming in, zipping through these items, barely saying anything. And if they do say anything, it's all scripted. They come in with their scripts, reading from their scripts. I don't know if people are noticing this. I noticed this. 
there are things that come up when you're talking and deliberating on an issue that you didn't plan in your notes and it should be brought up for the public. And we're just not seeing that. And I, for one, miss hearing all the thoughts and ideas from each of the council members where they're debating back and forth. Yes, the meetings went longer, but that makes sense given the weight of the decisions that are being made. And it's been a bit frustrating because when you see these agenda items really not being deliberated, council members aren't really listening to each other. They just all have their time to read their script and read their prepared speech and then make a decision knowing that they were gonna vote on it anyway. It's frustrating because why are we even making public comments then? You know, if we're not being heard, that's the only opportunity we as the residents have to be heard and they're not listening. They've already come in with their minds made and the residents deserve to be heard. And this is a representative government. They are there to serve us. And when public comments are being made again and again, because that's really the only option we have to be heard on an agenda item other than an email. And we are, for the most part, ignored and the decision has already been made and discussed outside of the public eye. It is against transparency. It is against good government. It is against the reasons we have the Brown Act in California. And next, I wanted to bring up the Brown Act. Have there not been Brown, are there Brown Act violations? Is that not an instrument that can be used to flag the transgressions occurring with so little transparency from our city council? Yes, the Brown Act has been violated. Not and so one. what recourse do we have, Branda? We don't really, unless you want to hire an attorney to sue the city. Irvine Watchdog, as well as some supporters, did submit a letter, a cease and desist letter, which is an Correct. option for residents. We did not make a demand that they revisit certain items that got approved. We just wanted to let them know we're watching and please stop. And it has not stopped. So they're, they're bluffing and you're trying to call their bluff, but they, they're still dealing the cards. So there's really, there's little that can be done with that's the current the, composition. Right, and that's part of the concern and that's part of the problem. You can raise it to the county DA's office is what we were told. After a cease and desist letter, if nothing's done and the violations occur, continue to occur, you can take it up with the county DA's office. However, if the DA doesn't follow through, you can hire an attorney to go after the city. But most times the city will listen and stop violating the Brown Act. Irvine, from what we've seen so far, that's just not been the case. You know, there's a lot of kind of teetering on what is and isn't a Brown Act violation. And a lot I of gray area there. Okay. A lot of gray area. That's and a problem. Even using the supplemental agenda, you know, why do we have the Irvine Sunshine Ordinance? They wanted to give the public a greater chance to review agendas and agenda items and review the agendas and the items and make public comments. But, and the supplemental agenda is really just for emergencies, things that needed to be changed, but they're using the supplemental agenda timeline, which is five days before the meeting, to put any and everything on there. And that's not its purpose. That has been violated numerous times. So, you know, it's- And there's no recourse there either. And there's no recourse. So given that, and we know the district attorney, Todd Spitzer's office, they have a very specific sort of business model going on right now. And I, I wouldn't put any kind of stock in leveraging that leadership to 
represent more transparency. He has his own transparency problem. So we can, I, I can't even seriously consider that option. And so at the end of the day, we really need leaders who we know that have more integrity and uphold the rules and laws uh, more carefully that are not willing to make such compromises. And when they're broken, we'll call them out. And, you know, I think about the misappropriation of tax dollars by council member Mike Carroll in 2020 and 2019. There's evidence he used money to campaign, tax dollars to campaign. And they all knew it. And council member Melissa Fox and then Mayor Christina Shea wanted to do an investigation but council members Quo, Khan, and Carol, who he's part of the concern and he didn't have to recuse himself on the vote, they voted to just sweep it under the rug. And that's what happened. We need leaders, regardless of who your friends are and who your acquaintances and alliances are, will uphold the integrity of the city and protect the city's assets and do what's best for our community and our, our city and call out the wrongdoing. Why do you have rules if you're not gonna enforce them? Why have rules if you're not gonna make sure that they're followed? So what happened is that the council executive assistant budget was ballooned from the previous amount. And just talk briefly about, instead of holding council member Carol accountable, there is a new opportunity with the council executive assistant budget that allows for maybe those transgressions to continue. Just briefly mention that before we close. Sure. And recently, the city council, um, I believe council member Tammy Kim brought forth item to double the council executive assistant budget from $80,000 a year to $175,000 a year. Per council member. Per council member. Okay. Less oversight because before it was itemized this much you can use for mailing this much you can use for this and they got rid of all that so they can move the money any way they see fit. So whether you want to hire a council executive assistant or not, if you want to save all that money for mailers, you can. And then council member Mike Carroll added a provision, a rollover provision for one year. So if he chooses not to spend any of the 175000 one year, he can roll it over to the next and use it all any way he sees fit. So now what- we're And explain the mailers. The mailer is a very gray area of whether it's promoting council business or it may be promoting the council member. Exactly. And it's a quasi-campaign piece. Exactly. And these mailers, you know, Mike Carroll used- a lot of it right before the election, running up to the election. Since he's been elected, there hasn't been any. So it really makes you question what their motivation was. And you know, in the world of politics and campaigning, it's obvious what it was, but for the average resident, perhaps not so much. He had lawn signs out for town hall meetings. He had big publisher clearinghouse type checks made out by you know, the office of council member, Mike Carroll, or the office, I think when he was vice mayor, um, Mike Carroll, no one in the history of our city had ever done that. Each council member is allotted a certain amount of money to delegate to nonprofits in our city to support their efforts. And these are checks for $500, $1,000, not very much. So it was really just to get a photo opportunity 
for, you know, campaigning, these mailers that went out, letters that went out, I received two of them. I saw the um, lawn signs for a town hall with council member Mike Carroll in my neighborhood. Never seen this before. You know, they're really taking advantage and abusing the money, the tax dollars that are given them to serve constituents while they're elected officials. And what Mike Carroll was doing, took that money, he used it for campaigning. And now they didn't reprimand him. They swept it under the rug. And now he has more than double the amount. Double that. All the council members can do this. The norms are actually being shattered a bit. Absolutely. So that all council members can do this to, to extend their incumbency. Some signs that we can look out for, you know, do are these council executive assistants, are they active in the community? Are they responding to the emails by, if you send to the council members? Or do you see them out and about helping the council member? Do they even have council executive assistants and how many do they have? So we need to make sure that the council members are using council executive assistant budgets to really serve our constituents in our city. To inform about the city. Well, I know that you're raising our critical thinking game about what our council members are doing in the service of our city, of us. So I would like for Branda to come back next week and take up the Orange County Power Authority appointments, the kinds of transactions they're involved with and the budgets. It's, a, I think, a, a story that's not getting sufficient coverage. So if you'll come back and expand on that. And it's still the same transparency theme. We're gonna continue folks here on Askalia. Will you come back next week, Branda? Absolutely. Okay, and you may have an additional coworker with the Irvine Watchdog join you. So thank you so much for your time. This interview was recorded on July 3rd. Thank you, Branda Lynn, for being back on Ask a Leader today. Thank you so much for having me. I love talking local politics. <laughs> it is so, so abundantly clear and it's so generous of you. My guest was Branda Lynn, co-founder of Irvine Watchdog, holding local elected officials accountable, raising our critical observing thinking game. Thanks again, Brenda. We'll be right back with Laguna Woods resident Mechi Frankie to give us the latest installment of Inside the 45th. Welcome back to the show. I'm Mechi Frankie and I'm Inside the 45th. Well, thank you, Mechi, for being on the show today. As the folks inside the 45th so far been on this program, I think you've got the longest view on electoral things. Tell us a little bit about the many places that you voted and when you arrived in the area that we know as the, the Congressional 45th District. Well, I lived in Texas, in the state of Texas, until... I was 35 almost, and I voted there for, I'm sorry to tell you, for Dwight Eisenhower the very first time I voted. Why do you say you're sorry? Well, because he was a Republican, you know. Oh, well. And I guess, you know, he was was from Texas, but other than that, uh, uh, I did vote Republican that one time. Uh, But since then, I have voted Democrat, and I also voted for Nader and... uh, I've been pretty far left. 
So you arrived then here when you were 35? No, I spent three miserable years in Iowa. Okay, so with the, the Iowa pickings at the time. Yes. So I'd like to know about your sort of how you fit in the 45th, you know, a little bit about how plugged in you are to things. We've got maps that are being redrawn. Are you involved at all with the redistricting? Or are you, is the redistricting process on your radar, Mechi? No, I'm sorry, I'm not. I should be. Well, I mean, it's not a should be. There's no right answers to my questions inside the 45th, just to make it clear for everybody now and for the future appearances on this program in this segment. So let's talk about the incumbent. How familiar are you with Congresswoman Katie Porter? How much do you know about her, follow her, or hear from her? Well, when she almost looked like she was going to lose the last election, uh, one of my dearest friends here, uh, I thought was going to have a nervous breakdown because <laughs> uh, she had, uh, Katie Porter had been talking to our Democratic club here in Laguna Woods Village. And uh, this particular friend was just enamored of her. And so uh, it was, of course, as you will remember, uh, some days before we knew who the, I was going to lose my friend. I thought she was going to have a nervous breakdown. <laughs> oh, okay. But uh, I'm I'm very enamored of her. You know, like like Katie, I was a single mother for a long time, and I think she does an incredible job with that whiteboard and everything. I, so I'm you've a, seen a few whiteboards that she's brought out. Yeah, I'm a I'm a big a big fan of Katie Porter. Okay. So. Were you involved in any of the electioneering, either in the midterms in 2018 or 2020, or, or are you an involved voter? I mean, I, we've, in the background you've talked about, you are a very habitual voter, but have you been involved in campaigns at all? Uh, not much. No, I'm sorry. My husband died in, in uh, 2015, and that sorry. went out of my sales. So uh, he was also uh, very involved, or more involved than I, I was. And so since then, I've just been kind of laid, laying low and, and uh, taking it easy. So he missed the 2016. Yes. He was spared that. Yes, that's true. <laughs> so, well, so you follow her or she follow, I mean, is there a, is there a kind of a connection? I mean, does she, does she like to, she's been to Laguna Woods, hasn't she, at least a oh, couple yeah. of times? She has spoken at the Democratic Club when I have been there several times. I'm bit, like I said, I'm a big fan of her. All she is and all she does. Okay. Have you ever sent her messages? Oh, I'm sure. Yes. Uh-huh. Email okay. Things, yeah. So, Mechi, what kind of media do you consume? How do you find out what's going on and what, what the federal congressional setting, how it should be performing? The federal congressional settings. Well, mostly of my, uh, most of my information I get from my iPhone. I do have an iMac as well, but but I, that's the hardware. What kind of what kind of media is coming through your hardware? What kind of media? So, are you getting newspapers? Are you getting so, get is it social media or? I, I subscribe to the Washington Post, and I'm also getting a lot of what's on the, the New York Times, but uh, not everything. So okay. mostly there, I, I read that every day. Do you participate in social media discussions, chats and things? No. 
Okay. I mean, this, cause everybody's going to have a different answer. That's the whole point of my inside the 45th segment. Cause it's a, it informs us all about how really different everybody is in this. So I, it's a one hypothetical. I'm going to ask everybody cause it, it's, I think it's going to work nicely is let's say you have a one-on-one with Katie Porter. So what would you do with that time? Let's say you've got 20, 30 minutes. What would you, how would you spend that time with her? Gee, I don't know. She always seems to be in such a hurry. I couldn't imagine 20 or 30 minutes with her. Well, this is a hypothetical. Okay. <laughs> well, I would just congratulate her, first of all, for everything she has done since she has been our, our congressperson. Uh, I particularly remember one segment where she was talking to Red, Redfield, the, the uh, uh, CDC director, yeah, the right. con- I'm sorry, the and Center was, for Disease Control director. Right. And she was demanding that he make it possible for people uh, to get their COVID shots without any payment. In other words, she was supporting her constituents who probably didn't vote, but needed it very much. So, so you saw that, that's all right. So you would take that up with her. I, I'd like to know what you do in a meeting with her. Gee, I can't even imagine. <laughs> I would just sit there probably and listen. Uh, oh, okay. So make, it she'd be, be leading a legal seminar with you, a legislative seminar. Yeah. Uh-huh. Was, wow. That's an interesting tack. Yeah. I never thought about that way. And so she gets the, um, I mean, the, she's got her young children and there's her, you know, her niches and all that. So do you feel like that she listens to seniors in the 45th? Oh, yes. I mean, you said she's appeared, but I mean, is she, is she saying the right things or, you know, with the, with the financial security and other, other kinds of things that she's well-schooled in? Yes, I think she's very concerned about seniors. She's been very supportive of our club here at Laguna Woods Village. Okay. So what's it like in Laguna Woods? It's a kind of an insular sort of community, but do do people in your community, do they talk about politics or is that off the the plate? What kind of banter happens at Laguna Woods? Well, it just depends on to whom you're talking. If you're talking to someone that's a member of the Democratic Club or the Concerned Citizens Club, and that you know well enough to know their politics, you can be uh, quite uh, expressive and uh, listen to them a lot and cuss and, and recuss, you know, dis- discuss. Uh, if you're talking to your neighbors that you see that they have a Trump hat by the door, you don't say much. You have to be very, very quiet. So. Do they, do they solicit your attention? Do they engage the conversation? Do they get it started with their, um, with their preferences? Who is that? My neighbor. The ones with the Trump hat at front. Uh, no, no, they're they're just they're very respectful and, and very because they know how, how how I am and they're very. They quiet. know. Okay, so everybody's got a, a way of flagging their preferences and the, the boundaries are honored. That's right. That's right. As far as my, my close neighbors are concerned. Okay. Okay. So just, I, that's a good way to lose friends is to discuss politics, you know, and. Uh, so I just don't, I just don't do it and they don't do it. So what's the kind of, now that I'm th- trying to sort of get, go a little deeper here with the community aspect. So what is the vaccination rate that you're aware of in Laguna Woods? 
Well, uh, the vaccination rate, I believe, is 80% here in Laguna Woods. We're doing pretty well. But uh, there are seven people in our cul-de-sac that have not been vaccinated. So wow. uh, I try to avoid them. If they're in the laundry room, I don't go in the laundry room. And uh, and how do you know they're not? That's, that's interesting. Oh, gossip. Uh, we do have two people here uh, that, that are very good about disseminating information. And so I ask one of them uh, and uh, find out, you know, and then uh, happily, uh, my one of my nearest neighbors the other day, I saw him and I said, have you gotten your vaccine yet? And he said, yes, I have. And I said, oh, we can be friends again. <laughs> and what did that person say? He said, I thought we were always friends. <laughs> See, yeah, that's why I'm asking about how, because I, I don't think there's, it's not symmetrical how, how sort of, um, how people interact, but I, yeah. So that's interesting. Well, what do you do you do do you do volunteer for in anything some any political movements? Not anymore. No. Uh -uh. What like, did you used to do? Uh, yeah, I I used to do a, a well the, the Democratic Club and the Concerned Citizens whenever they would have a a rally, you know, I would always attend. And particularly, I remember during the Iraq war when they were starting that up, you know, when my fellow Texan, only he's not a Texan, he's from the Northeast, uh, George W. Bush uh, started things up. Uh, and we were trying to keep that war from starting. I would go out and, and demonstrate on the street corners and always taking an American flag because I, I intend to keep that flag as a symbol of my patriotism and I won't surrender it to the to the people on the right. Interesting. That has been on uh, many people's minds about the importance of anyone can own that symbol, and not everybody has taken upon themselves to. Um, not all progressives have have uh, thought of it that way, and so. Um, it, but it's been on my mind too. So the, you said the Concerned Citizens is a, it's an ultra progressive group. What do, what's the purpose of Concerned Citizens? Well, the Concerned Citizens was started years before I moved here in, in 1997. And its uh, constituency was first a bunch of progressives from the Northeast. And these people were mainly of Jewish heritage, although they were not observant. And they were absolutely delightful. Uh, it was so wonderful to meet people who had the same political ideas as myself and my husband, and yet were, were so different. And so I had so many wonderful Jewish progressive friends in those days. But anyhow, it was initially started and it was called Concerned Citizens for Peace, which is another of my mantras. So uh, now, now they have taken a lot of things together, like for example, uh, the environment, and it, it's become a little more diverse, but they are a, a wonderful group and uh, very, very cohesive. And are they, is it growing or? I couldn't say it's growing. No, I, I think they are just maintaining. Their, They're their, maintaining. Uh-huh, yes. Okay. So how often do, do you all get together? Well, usually once a month, but of course, since COVID that's been restricted. So and there were Zoom, Zoom concerned citizens? Yes, uh, well, uh, mostly we did recordings on Zoom and then they were uh, disseminated through our local TV. And so uh, 
we, there was not a lot that, that we did that was interactive through Zoom. So what in your mind is some oppressing, pressing kinds of issues happening? I'll move the us up to a higher altitude in considerations, but what do you think the 45th pressing issues are, Mechie? Well, to keep electing Democrats and to turn the place blue. I don't, I don't think there's, uh, there, there, there are that many Republicans here. We've just got to get more Democrats to vote. And uh, one of the things I've tried to do is to uh, have people that are my friends or maybe befriend them that don't vote. And uh, just, just keep hounding them, you know. I remember one lady uh, who uh, said, well, that she was just, too high-minded for that. She wasn't going to vote, but I kept pressing her. Too high-minded? How can you be high-minded and not vote? <laughs> it didn't make a lot of sense to me either. Huh. Uh, and and uh, uh, also immigrants. I think they don't vote for a number of reasons. I had one man tell me he didn't vote because he had debated so strongly on his employment. And if he registered to vote, that meant that he would have to do jury duty and he couldn't afford to take the days off. I have heard that reason for people not registering. That is, that is not it's sad. It's, it is sad, but they're thinking way ahead on that. But um, right. yeah, I of have course, heard that. Their employment is, is uh, uh, largely temporary, you know, and, and so it's not as though they had a year's contract or anything. Okay. Wow. So, well, we're recording this, folks, on July 2nd, and we, there may still be an, one more Supreme Court decision rendered today. I'd like us, I guess, our, one of our last questions with our time together, Mechie, is does what is rolling out from the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court, does it weigh on you the consequences of essentially they're they're making policy at this point. They're establishing voting rights policy with their decisions. How does that reach you? Well, I think it I think it's sad. I think the last couple of of uh, things they decided, cases they decided, have been negative for us because they were restricting uh, voting rights, which is not right. You know, it's I was so hopeful here in California when we had the uh, absentee voting without any restrictions and, and things that things would go that way in the rest of the states. But uh, now it looks as though that under the uh, sponsorship uh, of the Supreme Court, it's going the other way. And of course, these are people that are, these are not powerful people. These are people that are still growing in their d devotion to the United States and to their voting rights. So uh, th these are the ones that are being disenfranchised. Wow. Well, is there anything as a constituent inside the 45th you'd like to say in closing, Mechie? Well, I just hope that we keep the 45th blue. <laughs> we don't okay. lose any, any, uh, in, in, any territory. Well, Mechie Frankie, Thank you so much for your time on this Inside the 45th segment. Okay, thank you. So is there anything that now when you really reflect, because I'm gonna keep recording, maybe there's something else that you wanted to bring up. 
Oh, I was just thinking just now when you were uh, yes. working with my, with my last name, I was going to say that I have a positive aspect about immigrants because I have so many immigrant stories in my family. My uh, father's family moved to Texas in the mid 19th century and there they experienced much of the problems that uh, people are experiencing now here in California. Uh, and one thing was the immigrant that came from Bustro in mecklenburg Schwerin, uh, he learned English before he came and he managed to get elected to the Texas uh, legislature in uh, 1873. He served about a month, maybe six weeks, and he was bludgeoned to death on the steps of the Texas Capitol. This is your forebear? Yes, my forebear, my great-grandfather. And, wow. uh, and, and in the process though, his name was Franca. It originally had a C in it, F-R-A-N-C-K-E. And uh, it, they, nobody knew quite how to pronounce that. So they started saying Frankie. And when he became a member of the legislature, they added an E. So there was F-R-A-N-K-E-E -E, to be sure you pronounced it correctly. <laughs> oh my goodness though. And you, the place you mentioned, was that a German town, Münster, did you say? Yeah, well, Gustro, G-U-M-L-A-U-S-T-R-O. Okay. In, that's in Northern Germany in what is now Mecklenburg for Pomeran. Uh, okay. It's okay. Up close to Denmark, you know, that, that area. You've, per, you've prevailed. Well, it's been a lot easier since we've been in California. Uh, in Texas, it was pretty tough for a while because uh, in, in 1920s, 1930s, Texas, uh, progressivism was pretty strong. And then uh, in the 50s, uh, people began to realize they were really Republicans, so things got worse. But you said you were there when she was first governor. I'm trying to remember. I, yes, I, I believe so, yes, uh-huh. Uh, although I remember when they were, uh, when, when, the, when George Bush was opposing her, that there was a telephone campaign that went around a bunch uh, among the evangelicals. And they said, do you know that Ann Richards has some lesbians working in her office? And that made many people, that made the decision for many people not wow. to vote. That's their whisper campaign was that, yeah, that right. that's the disqualifier. Yes. Not, yeah. Oh my goodness. Oh, wow. And it, well, I mean, Richard Nixon and his pinko stuff in the, when he was congressman here in yeah. Orange County, same, same that those, and they, they've dusted off the manual with the clinical race theory. Now they're going to bring out that boogeyman and misinterpret the hell out of it. So.